we welcome you to the REST podcast. The messages you will hear have been taken from sessions from past REST conferences. We pray that God will use this message to encourage and strengthen you in your walk with the Lord and your ministry for Him. Well, I want you to open your Bible with me, if you will, to the Gospel according to Mark. And we're returning to the the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And uh, I talked to you in the last session that I had with you from the Gospel according to John, but I want to bring you to the Gospel according to Mark, to Mark chapter 6, if I may, in this session. Uh, I love the Gospel records. In fact, full disclosure, I think Mark is my favorite. I had a, a teacher in Bible college that used to say his favorite book of the Bible was whichever one he was studying at the time. That's a pretty good way of saying it uh, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. But there are certain portions of Scripture that God will just connect to your life in a certain way. For example, how many of you have a life verse? Just curious, you have a life verse. All right. On the count of three, shout it out, would you? One, two, three. That's good. That's a wonderful verse, whatever you said. Uh, For some reason, God connected that verse to your life. I'm curious how many of you have a life book. Anybody have a life book? A couple people do. Uh, That was something that uh, that someone recommended to me long ago, that you ought to choose a book of the Bible, kind of make that your book. Uh, Sometimes I've taken a book for the year and said, this is going to be my book for this year. Mark has been one of those books for me. Uh, it's a quick read. It's 16 chapters long. It's a fast-moving drama because of the, the writing style that Mark used. I think 14 out of the 16 chapters start with straightway or immediately or and. I mean, it just it moves along. And uh, it is a book that I have returned to over and over and over again. I remember years ago reading uh, after a man who said that when he went to a, a certain university in Germany, they tried to tear down his faith. They tried to discredit the Scriptures and remove, you know, his confidence in the Word of God. And he said every night when he got home, he had a habit, and his habit was he would read through the entire gospel according to Mark, all 16 chapters. And he said, I did it every night I was in college. And he said that was the one thing that became the anchor for me that kept me from drifting. And so in some ways, Mark has been that for me. In fact, just a few weeks ago, uh, even the thoughts I'm going to share with you today grew out of this. But even a few weeks ago, I thought, I'm going through Mark again. And when I got to the end of Mark 16, after a few days, the Holy Spirit said, do it again. And so I backed up instead of moving on another book and uh, started in Mark 1, went through it again. I got to the end of it, and the Lord said, do it again. And so I backed up and went through it again. I think sometimes we're so quick to move on, we miss some of what God is trying to say to us. And I, truthfully, I think one of the best things you can do is pitch your tent in a portion of Scripture, drive a stake in the ground, and just dig there for a while. Work through it, meditate through it, pray through it. And so Mark is one of those, one of those sections that I think there's so much for us to learn. Uh, I'm making a personal devotional habit right now to try to read something every day out of the gospel records, no matter where I am in the Bible. And the reason I'm doing that is I want to keep my thoughts on Christ. I would recommend that to you. I have a friend in Canada who is shut in, uh, but he prays for us diligently, and he emails me almost every day, sometimes more than once a day. And his, his emails are prayers. I love it. I love getting them. And he has started closing all of his correspondence to me the same way. This is how he signs off every email. Walk by Calvary at least once every day. That's really helped me. Because I'm thinking right now how easy it is to get cold. Anybody else notice that? 
how easy it is to get hard, indifferent, angry, frustrated, whatever, stressed out. But if you keep walking by Calvary, oh, look, getting a fresh glimpse of Jesus, now that changes everything, doesn't it? And so I would recommend that to you. And as I've walked by Calvary and walked through this book, I came to Mark 6, and I noticed some things that I had missed. And they're not new, but I hope they'll be fresh for you as they are for me. Look at Mark chapter 6, uh, verse number 29. Because here is the end of a great ministry. John the Baptist has just had his head chopped off. And the Bible says in Mark 6, verse 29, And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Now, when we started this rest emphasis a few years ago, we took this verse, verse 31, as the theme verse, come apart. Uh, it was Vance Habner that said, if you don't come apart, you will come apart. And it's an amazing verse. I, I was just meditating on it again this morning. Do you think the Lord Jesus understood the disciples better than they understood themselves? Do you think he understands you better than you understand you? I'm, I'm discovering that my perceived needs are not always my real needs. And that sometimes what I think is not right because his thoughts are higher than ours. Remember, Jesus was the one that said, I don't need anybody to testify what is in man. I know what is in man. So the Lord knows us. And I was thinking about this this morning. I think the Lord knew at this juncture these disciples were getting a little thin. How many of you know what I mean by that? How many of you have ever been thin? You know, we talk about walking on thin ice. Sometimes we get thin. Uh, we, we lose the energy. We lose the, the spiritual stamina. We lose the courage. And we get thin. And here's the Lord. Isn't this just like the tenderness of Christ, the meekness and gentleness of Jesus, that instead of driving them forward or saying to them, all right, fellas, you've done a good job. Let's get back out there and get after it again. He says to them, fellas, come with me. We're going we're gonna to sneak off by ourselves for a little while. We're going to get away. He's caring for them. But I don't know why, but in all the time that I, I read this passage, I missed the connection to the previous verses. Remember, every story has a setting. Every text has a context. So if you back up, notice what has happened just prior to this. John the Baptist, the greatest preacher in history outside the Lord Jesus. We might even say it this way. The, the herald of truth that even the apostles would have pointed to and said, now, you want to, you want to know a preacher, that's a preacher has just been put to death, has come to not only a tragic end, but you, you would have to think from a human standpoint a real disappointment. I mean, is this the way it's supposed to end? John in prison? And now he gets his head chopped off? I mean, this is, this is not what we hoped for. This is not what we thought. In fact, think about it this way. Some of the apostles that you find in verse number 30 had started as what is referred to in verse 29, disciples of John. Do you remember? how some of them followed Christ. It was because John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So you have to believe that there's a lot of emotion in these men at this moment. In fact, I, I see two things. In verse 29, I think there's emotion. And in verse 30, I think there's exhaustion. Does that ring anybody's bell? 
There is the emotion of John's death. He's been taken away from them, and they're grieving. And certainly we sorrow not as those who have no hope, but we do sorrow. And that's real. Preachers hurt too. Preachers' wives hurt too. So there's emotion that has to be dealt with and emotion that has to be sanctified. And then in verse number 30, you've got exhaustion. Now, you know they're excited. I mean, they're telling the Lord all that they've done and all that they've taught and all that. You remember, even the devils are subject to them. I mean, they're excited, but they're exhausted. How many of you know after you've given out, given out, given out, given out, you're drained? You're empty. You, you need replenish. You need refreshed. And it is in the context of that emotion and that exhaustion that Jesus says, all right, let's, let's get away for just a little while. Isn't that interesting? Uh, in fact, I see a great contrast of verse 29 and verse 30 in some ways. In verse 29, you have the burdens of ministry, and in verse 30, you have the blessings of ministry. And all of us who've been in the Lord's work for any length of time know there's plenty of both to go around. And you don't get one or the other, you get them both. A great door is open unto us, and there are many adversaries. How many of you can think of one blessing right now just in the Lord's work or some blessing in your life as a result of being in the Lord's work? Would you raise your hand, please? Okay. Can I give you a suggestion about that? Think on those much. Accentuate that. Think on the positives. Because the devil wants you fixed on the burden without thinking much about the blessings. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. I think every day there ought to be a season where we're just thanking God for who He is and for what He's done in our life. And by the way, that should not only be in our private prayers to God, that should also be in our conversations with our families. If you want to keep home happy and your children joyful, don't just talk about you know what we have to do or what... You know, somebody said, but talk about all of the good things God has brought into your life. And then what do you do with the burdens? You bring those to the Lord. You have to cast those on the Lord. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, now that you've been in evangelism for several years, how does it differ from what you did for nearly 20 years working on a church staff? And I laughed and I said to them, well, in many ways there are similarities because it's ministry and you're working with people and you're preaching and teaching the Bible. But in lots of ways, it's different. Here's what I've learned from a practical standpoint. Every work has its blessings and its challenges. So I don't care what you do. Uh, pastor, serve as evangelist, be a missionary, uh, work in prisons, teach Christian school, just pick something. They all have their blessings and they all have their challenges. And it's like any other work, you have to learn to minimize the challenges and accentuate the blessings. Because if you don't, you'll turn that around, and after a while, you'll, you'll just be suspent. You just don't even want to do it anymore. And so here is the Lord leading his disciples, these that he's training and bringing along, apart for a while. Now, I want you to skip down. Would you please? We're coming back to the, to the middle verses in just a moment. But I want you to skip down to verse number 33. They depart into a desert place by ship privately. Look at verse 33. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and out went them, and came together unto him. May I say, most preachers would say, I'd give anything to have that kind of draw. But if you're the disciples, and you're spent, and you're looking forward just to being alone with Jesus, and you look up, and the multitude showed up there too, you're thinking, heaven help us. I mean, what's wrong with you people? Leave us alone for a little while. We just want to eat. Ever been there? In fact, I've marked in my Bible at the end of verse 31, no leisure. 
no leisure. May I just say, leisure time is not sin. Now, what you do with it may be sinful, but everybody needs some leisure. You can't run full speed all the time. You can't keep that pace forever, not, not in the marathon. I mean, you can sprint, but you can't, you can't run the marathon that way. You can't stay stressed out and tense all the time. You can't stay worked up all the time. I mean, there's got to be leisure. And on a, on a practical note, may I just suggest to you, preachers need healthy distractions. They do need healthy distractions, and I'm going to tell you why. And, and I know people that say, I don't need anything, bless God. Well, usually those are the people that at some point get in trouble or really get bitter. And I'm going to tell you what I've learned. Those who do not have healthy distractions develop unhealthy ones. And the unhealthy distraction can be some terrible thing, or it could be even some good thing out of its proper place, out of priority, but it's because there was no leisure. There was no, there was no healthy distraction where you could just get your spirit, soul, and body refreshed. So come down, would you please? That's what I want you to see in verse number 35. When the day was now far spent, that means it's been a long day. You ever had a long day? His disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. I, can't you hear the frustration in them? I mean, you know, it's been a long day, Lord. Look at all these people. I mean, there's a certain measure of frustration in them because they are thin. Their resources are, are running low in every way. I, I don't know about you, but when my soul is refreshed, when I have taken the time to let the Lord by His Spirit minister to my inner man, uh, I can deal with so much more. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's like, I don't know, heaven's wind is at your back. It's, things come at you, it's still the same junk, but you see it differently, you deal with it differently. But when I neglect the inner man, when I'm running thin, when I'm running low, the slightest thing can set me off. The smallest thing suddenly becomes a burden. I think there's a great lesson in that. And by the way, it's not just us. Read the gospel records again. Put yourself in their sandals. They're dealing with the same thing. Some things never change. So what's their answer? Verse 36. This sounds like a solution, doesn't it? Send them away. Let's get rid of these people. Get rid of the people. Get rid of the problems. And all God's preachers said, amen. All right, so... Send them away that they may go into the country roundabout into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. What they really were saying is we have nothing to give them. We got nothing, Lord. I mean, we're just, we're, we're all out. We're fresh out of bread. We're fresh out of ideas. We're fresh out of resources. We're just, we got nothing. They got nothing. Everybody's got nothing. Now, here's the beauty of nothing. The beauty of nothing is our nothing brings us to Christ everything. So the end of us is the beginning of him. And when you come to what you think is a wall, you actually find out with the Lord it's an open door. Because now we're standing on the threshold of one of the greatest miracles in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you ever notice the two solutions to the problems and to the pressures of ministry in Mark 6? You might even want to mark it. In verse 31, one option, one response is get away. The Lord says come apart in a desert place and rest a while. Let's get away. And may I just say, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes you just need to get away. Sometimes you need to check out. Sometimes I can't check out. You can. It existed before you got there. It will run while you're gone, and it will be there when you get back. 
Sometimes you just need to get away. Can I tell you what much of that is? Much of that's just pride on all of our part. When we say it can't run without me, guess what? You just made it all about me. Frank Sales used to say, pride says I can't and I can. Both of them start with I. And may I say, these disciples, you know, they're, they're thinking, right, we've got to get this done, we've got to get this done. The Lord says, no, we're going to get away. So there's a sense in which one healthy response is, let's take a little time away ourselves. But that doesn't always work perfectly. How long have you been in the Lord's work? Long enough to know that doesn't work perfectly. So you planned a vacation and somebody died. So you decided to take some time away and somebody goes into ICU, Right? People never schedule their sicknesses at the right time, do they? Never. And there are just disruptions and things happen. So immediately then we get fleshly. Mark the second response in verse 36, send them away. So if response one, let's get away, doesn't work. Response two is get rid of the people, send them away. Can I tell you, neither one of those is the answer. And as I meditated through Mark 6 and looked at Mark 6, the push and the pull of ministry, you know there's both, right? There's the push. That's what's inside of you. That's what you feel like I got to get done. Then there's the pull. That's what's outside of you. That's the people pulling on you and their needs that you're not sufficient for. In the push and pull of ministry, to please don't miss this, you and I are either going to respond like the disciples or respond like Jesus. And I want to speak to you on this subject. Would you write this across the top of your paper? To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. May I say to you that in the ministry, the greatest goal you ought to have is not to do something. It is to be like Jesus. The greatest objective we ought to have is not to get the building finished or to increase the missions giving or to get the seats full or to you fill in the blank. The greatest goal should be this. I want to be more like Jesus because here's, here's the key. If I am more like Jesus then the power of Christ will rest upon me and the power of Christ will accomplish what I could never accomplish in a thousand lifetimes. Look, God can do more in a moment than you can in an entire ministry. If we concentrated on simply being more like Christ, and what is this? What is this book? This book is a mirror. Isn't it a mirror? And it's painful sometimes to look in the mirror because when you look in the mirror, it reveals to you what you really are. And the other day, as I was walking through Mark 6, actually, I was praying my way through Mark 6. I'd recommend that to you. I, I try, when I have my time alone with God, not just to read my Bible. I try to pray my way through a passage. Literally, I try to take the verses and turn them into prayer. Not just the prayers of the Bible, but every passage. Because I learned something. The Bible is a living book, and when you start talking to it, God talks back to you. And it becomes a, a conversation with the author. So here I am the other day, and I'm praying my way through Mark 6, and suddenly the Holy Spirit starts connecting for me the death of John the Baptist and the disappointment of that, the exhaustion of their preaching tour. Now the Lord's bringing them apart. Then the multitudes won't leave them alone. Now they're out of resources, and they have nothing. And I'm seeing myself in the disciples. And I must tell you that most of the time when I look in the mirror, the reflection I see is I see myself much more like the disciples than like Jesus. What were the disciples in this passage? Annoyed, aggravated, questioning, spent. Sound familiar to anyone else? And what's the Lord Jesus? Calm, resting, ministering. Let me ask you a question. Which one do you want to be like? By the way, you know what Jesus was doing in the passage? 
Somebody says, yeah, he was feeding multitudes and, and stilling the storm and healing the sick. No, that's not what he was doing. He was teaching a bunch of preachers, a bunch of disciples, how to rest through their labor, how to keep the heart of the Father while you're dealing with all these people. And the great goal must be, dear Lord, I want to be like Jesus. So what's that look like? Well, let me take you to a verse that we jumped over. Look with me at verse 34, and I want to give you a list of some things that I think all of us ought to pray. Dear Lord, let this be true of me. Dear Lord, make me like this. Make me more like the Lord Jesus. He, he's the model. Look at verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people. Number one, would you write this down? If I'm going to be like Jesus, number one, I need to pray that I will see people like Jesus sees them. You know what's really interesting to me? The disciples saw the same people he saw. <laughs> but when they saw them, they saw something different. When they saw them, all they could see were the immediate needs, the physical needs. All they could see was the crowd. When Jesus saw them, what did he see? Look at the verse. He saw them as what? Sheep. And not just as sheep, but sheep not having a shepherd. May I ask you, what do you see? When you sit on the platform and you look across the audience, what do you see? When you stand at the back door and people walk through the door, what do you see? When you stand in the building looking out the window and people pull in the parking lot and their families are getting out of their car and they're coming into the church, what do you see? When you go to the house and you walk through the door, what do you see? Because I think most of us look at people many times much like the disciples looked at people and we fail to see them like Jesus sees them. I'm going to tell you what we need. We need new eyes. We need Jesus' eyes. We need to see, if I may say it this way, from heaven's perspective. See, we, we're people. Aren't we people? So we have a tendency to look at people like another people. <laughs> but instead, we have to look at people like God sees them, to look beneath the surface to the spiritual need that they have. And I ask you again, what do you see? You ought to pray, dear Lord, help me see these people as sheep, defenseless, incapable of guiding their own lives, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Um, open, susceptible to the attacks of the enemy, the wolf circling around them. Dear Lord, let me see these people like you see them as sheep. By the way, you'll speak to people differently when you see them differently. You will respond to them differently when you see them differently as sheep not having a shepherd, understanding that their greatest need is always spiritual and understanding that their greatest need is just Jesus. Isn't this interesting? Jesus looked at the people and recognized what they needed was him. The disciples looked at the people and all they could think was, we can't meet this need. Now I'm going to let you in on a profound truth. Are you ready? Your people don't need you. They need Jesus. And the people that I'm going to preach to later this week, they don't need me. They just need Jesus. And the sooner I recognize that, the better off we all are going to be. Because then, instead of me trying to rise to meet the need, I realize my job is not to rise to meet the need. My job is to lift up Jesus to them. And if I can point them to Jesus then the Lord Jesus will meet the deepest needs of their life. I mean, you know, we preach and we say theologically we believe in the all-sufficiency of Christ. We just don't work like it. And we all give mental assent to it and a hearty amen, 
But we just don't work that way because we feel like somehow we have to meet the needs and we have to make up some deficiency. Let me just tell you something. There is no deficiency in the person of Jesus Christ. And when people get the Lord Jesus in his rightful place in their life, he meets the needs of their life. I've got to see them like Jesus sees them. And the only way to do that is keep my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I got convicted the other day. I mean, look, in the last few months, we've all gotten really annoyed and aggravated with how, how stupid sin has become. Would you agree with that? Has anybody else noticed sin gets dumber and dumber? That's nothing new. There's a miserable insanity to sin. Go all the way back to the garden. You know what sin was at its inception? A lie. When you believe a lie, guess what happens? You reject all truth. When you accept darkness, you miss the light. And that's why the prodigal had to come to himself. There is a miserable insanity to sin. They believed a lie. So you start watching the news and you look around town and you think, has everybody lost their ever-loving minds? And the answer is, that's what sin does. And it just, it's ignorance. That's what it is. But then I got so convicted because this thought dawned on me, not for you, for me, all right? This thought dawned on me. Why should I be annoyed when sinners act like sinners? That's what they are. They're sinners. So instead of me fussing about what I don't like that they're doing, maybe what I need is to back the train up a little bit and recognize what that grows out of is an ignorance of God and suddenly now, I'm starting to see them like souls for whom Jesus died. Frankly, I think a lot of the people we fuss about, if we spent more time praying over their souls, we'd get a whole lot more done. Because your intercession will get much more done than your criticism. And that doesn't mean we don't speak against folly and lies and error, but it does mean that we have to learn to see people like Jesus sees them. Oh, to be like Jesus. There's a second one. Look at the verse again. Verse 34, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them. No, number two, here's my second prayer. Lord, I not only want to see people like Jesus sees them, I want to love people like Jesus loved them. You know, feelings are funny things, aren't they? They are not always an indicator of truth. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse, the prophet answers that question. The Lord tries the hearts. The Lord knows our hearts. But I've had to learn this about myself, that my emotions are not always uh, the standard of truth. I mean, I wake up in the morning sometimes and don't feel like a Christian. Anybody else ever just not feel like a Christian? But I am a Christian. There are many times sitting on the front row of a church, exhausted and tired and spent, and my mind just wandering, and this may not sound spiritual, but I'm sorry, I'm just telling you the truth. I don't feel like getting up and preaching. Any of you ever had a day when you just didn't feel like preaching? I'm curious. You know, somebody says, well, what do you do on the days you don't feel like preaching? You preach in faith, which is really the way you ought to preach all the time. That's what instant in-season, out-of-season means. It means when you don't feel like it. For feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My hope is in the Word of God. Not else is worth believing. See, if you let emotions dictate your ministry, you will ride a religious roller coaster your whole life. Up and down, in and out, on and off, hot and cold. Somebody referenced Bobby Robertson earlier in this meeting. To me, Brother Bobby was, I, I think, like the picture of a man who no doubt had many emotions and had to work through them, but he never let emotions run his ministry. 
I mean, every time you're around him, it's just like constant, consistent, just, you know, the same. It's like, how's the guy always the same? And somebody said, that's just personality. That is not personality. That is spirituality. I don't care what your personality's like. You can't deal with what a man like that dealt with and just be constant all the time unless you're stayed upon the Lord. And so our emotions have to be sanctified. What was Paul's prayer? I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was praying for the sanctifying work of God over every part of life. And this is just an extra. Write this down somewhere. You ought to pray every day that God will sanctify your emotions. If you let emotions, fleshly, selfish emotions run your ministry, they'll ruin your ministry. They will ruin you. And so what must I do every day? The hardest thing I have to do some days is choose against myself. For example, when I get up in the morning and I don't feel like singing, guess what I make myself do? Yeah. And when I don't feel like praying, I most need to pray. And when I don't feel like reading my Bible, I know I need to read an extra chapter or two today. And here's what I've discovered. When you choose against yourself, which is the hardest thing to do, you're exercising another part of your soul, not your emotion. You're exercising your will. And whatever you exercise strengthens. And if you'll learn to exercise your will, after a while your will will lead your emotions instead of your emotion leading your will. Jesus was the only perfect one in this. His emotions were, were always sanctified because he's the God-man. But look at it, please. The Bible says he was moved with compassion. So I want to not only see people like the Lord saw them, I now want to feel towards them like the Lord felt towards them. And the one mark of Christ's emotion that comes up over and over and over again in the Gospels is love. And I understand we say love's not an emotion, it's a choice, that's true. But the word moved here is an emotion word. And so it does touch the emotion. You can't be cold, calloused, hard, indifferent towards people and make a difference. You're going to make a difference. You have to make a difference through compassion. And one thing that I think we all need to be praying right now is that God will give us a fresh baptism of the love of God. We need that. I mean, look, the world has gotten more hateful. Agreed? Christian people have gotten harder. The, the, the climate we're living in is harsher than it's ever been. The only thing that's going to cut through all of that is the perfect love of God. The greatest of these is charity. It is the bond of perfectness. It's the ultimate. Why? Because it's who God is. It's the nature of God. God is love. So what I'm praying is this, Lord, help me see people like you see them, and then help me love those people like you love them. Help me love them with Calvary love. Help, them, help me love them sacrificially. Help me love them unselfishly. Help me love them if they don't love me in return. Help me love them. I read this verse the other day. The Bible says, Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Wouldn't it be a great prayer? Dear Lord, help me love them to the end. What is the end? Is that when you die? Is that when they die? Is that when the trumpet sounds? Is that when? When is that? Whenever that happens to be, however the Lord chooses that, you love them to the very end if you're going to love them like Jesus. I believe this is the great motivator. You know, motive matters. Why we do what we do matters. Matter of fact, let me just show you something. Hold your place here, Mark 6. Turn over to Mark 15 with me just for a second, real quick. Look at Mark chapter 15. And Mark, you know the story of Mark 15. Mark 15 is the mistrials of Christ and then the crucifixion of Christ. But did you ever notice all the motive words in this passage? If you back up actually to chapter 14, you got the first one in Judas, chapter 14, verse 10 and 11. Uh, he 
made an agreement, remember, for money to sell the Lord. So here you really have the first motive. Judas was moved by greed. Some people in ministry are moved by greed. What they can get out of it. Well, that's an impure motive. Come back to chapter uh, 14 and look at verse number 50. They all forsook him and fled. That's the disciples. All of them. (laughs) Did it ever dawn on you Jesus lost the first church, the whole church, on the same night? Now, he didn't lose them because he was keeping them, but watch this. Somebody said, we lost these people. Did it ever dawn on you that the first shepherd, the first pastor, his whole church left him one night? They all forsook him and fled. So watch this. Judas is moved by greed. The disciples are moved by fear. Then come to chapter 15 and look at verse number 10. He knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. So the religious leaders, what were they moved by? They were moved by envy. There's a whole lot of envy in ministry today too. Jealousy. And isn't it ironic? Who, who, who was moved by envy? The religious leaders. Religious leaders. I'm going to tell you what I've learned about religious flesh. It's still flesh. So you can let it carry a Bible, operate on a platform, lead a ministry, but if it is not under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, it's being moved and motivated by the wrong thing. Let me show you another one. Come down to verse number 11. But the chief priest moved the people. Do you see that moving word again, that motivating word? They stirred it up. All right, so what's the mob motivated? They're motivated by hatred. That sounds like the world we're living in today. It's taking a stand against Christ. And then come down to uh, verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to what? Huh. Here's another motivation. Content the people. He's moved by people. Is this an interesting list? In fact, look at Pilate's words. In verse 12, he asks, what will I do with him? But in verse 14, he asks this question, why? What evil have they done? The why is always connected to the what. You get the motive right, the outgrowth is right. You get the motive off, the outgrowth is wrong. So look at all these people. Judas moved by greed. The disciples moved by fear. The religious leaders moved by envy. The mob moved by hatred. Pilate moved by the people. But there's one person in Mark 15 that's moved by the right thing. You know who it is? Christ. And you know what he was moved by at the cross? Love. Everybody's moved by something. And the great prayer of our ministry ought to be, Dear Lord, keep the motive right. I had a man, he would not mind me sharing this with you, a man who's invested in me, helped me, um, been in the ministry a long time, now retired, who said to me not long ago on the phone, he said, Scott, he said, I want to tell you about a turning point in my ministry early on. He said, when I was about your age. I said, okay. He said, our, our work was growing. He said, I was preaching. People were being saved. The church was moving forward. He said, it was the greatest era in my ministry. It was the greatest time of my life. And then he said something to me, and I knew some of his story, but he said something to me I had never heard him say before. He said, somewhere in the midst of all of that, he said, my motive got off. He said, I don't know when it happened. I don't know exactly where it happened. I can't exactly point it down to you. He said, but somewhere I got so caught up in all that was going on and all that people were saying and all the expectations of the people that somewhere my motive changed. And then he said this to me on the phone. He said, and Scott, when my motive changed, everything changed. I've been thinking on that the last few weeks. When my motive changed, everything changed. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to push the spiritual reset button. Let's go back to first principles. Dear Lord, I just want to be like you. That's what I want. I want to see people like you see them, and I want to love people like you love them. 
Let's get a third one. Go back to our passage, Mark 6, verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, was moved with compassion toward them because they were sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Do you see that? To teach them many things. So if I'm going to be like Jesus, then I need to begin to teach people like Jesus taught them. We need to go back to teaching people. And I love the word preach, and I am a preacher, and I love preaching, but the word teach actually means something. And I want you to know we're living in a day of biblical illiteracy and ignorance of spiritual things. And right now, everybody's questioning lots of things. Anybody else notice that? And I'm going to tell you what we got to do. We got to go back. Matter of fact, you might want to mark the word began. We need a new beginning of teaching in our churches. We've got to teach people the why again. Why do we have a midweek service? Why should we pray? Why is giving essential? Why should we assemble? Why, why, why? Teach them what the Bible says. I've marked in my Bible this, teach them many things. There's a breadth and a depth of spiritual truth that people need wrapped up in these words, many things. We've got to go back to giving them the Word of God. Our opinions and the traditions of men are not enough. We've got to teach people the Bible. You want to be like Jesus? We've got to see them like He saw them. We've got to love them like He loved them. We've got to teach them like He taught them. Number four, we need to pray for them like He prayed for them. Come over to verse 46. After he feeds the multitude and they depart from him and the disciples get in a ship, where do you find Jesus? Verse 46, he departed into a mountain to pray. When even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. You ever wonder what he was praying about at that juncture? I certainly think he was just communing with his father, getting his own soul replenished because he knew how to do that well as the perfect man. But I'm convinced he was praying for the people. In fact, in the ministry of Jesus, did you ever notice that Jesus prayed more for the multitudes after he ministered to them? For example, he teaches the disciples, John 14, 15, and 16. What comes after it? John 17, the high priest, the prayer of Jesus, where he commits them to God and prays that God will keep the truth in their heart. Let me ask you, when do we do most of our praying? I'll just testify, I do more of my praying before I preach and teach. You know what I think it speaks to? It perhaps speaks to motive. Before we preach and teach, we're praying, Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, use me. Oh, God, speak to people. What we might really be praying is, Oh, God, help me not make a fool out of myself. But when Jesus finished his preaching and teaching, that's when the praying and the real spiritual work went because he knew that the devil was going to sweep through and try to snatch that seed of truth away. I believe he was praying for the multitudes. I also believe he was praying for the disciples at that moment because if you keep reading... Look what the Bible says in verse 48. He saw them toiling and rowing. Remember, they're in the ship in the middle of the storm. So I love this picture. Here's Jesus in the place of prayer. He's got one eye on heaven and the other eye on them. Can I tell you, that's to be the prayer life of every minister. One eye on the throne and the other eye on the people. We see them, we love them, we teach them, but we must pray for them because our prayers will accomplish more than our talking can. When we pray, God speaks and God works. Let me give you one more and I'll be done. To see them like Jesus saw them, to love them like Jesus loved them, to teach them like Jesus taught them, to pray for them like Jesus prayed for them, and number five, then to trust that like Jesus worked for them, he will work for us. Do you know what the whole chapter is? It's just Jesus getting it done. Somebody says, I'm going to get it done. No, no, you're going to hit a wall. That's what you're going to do. But Jesus can get it done. In verses 37 to 44, he provides for hungry hearts. 
You're going home to some hungry people. He'll provide. You're not the producer. You, you were never called to produce anything. You were called to bear the fruit. Jesus is the producer. In verse 47 to 53, he protects in every storm. By the way, sometimes the greatest storms of life are the private storms, the ones the public don't know about, the ones the multitude didn't see, our own fears in the middle of the night. It's all right. The same one who provided for each hungry heart will protect in every storm. And then in verse 55 and 56, he'll be present for every need. Look how the chapter ends. As if this were all not enough. Verse 55, they ran throughout that whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard that he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were, but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. I tell you, in a broken world, isn't it wonderful to know a whole Christ? He's the one who makes whole. He will be present. By the way, mark this in your Bible because we're all getting ready to leave just a little bit. Where are we going? That whole region in verse 55. Verse 56, villages, cities, or country. <laughs> Wherever it is you're going today, you ready for this? Jesus is already there. Wherever you're going to minister, whoever you're going to see, and whatever they're going to deal with, Christ will be more than enough wherever you are. Our job, one thing, to be like Jesus. He was just a young boy named Thomas Chisholm growing up in Kentucky, became a school teacher and later editor of a newspaper, but he heard his pastor one day preaching a sermon in church, and he went home after the pastor's sermon and wrote a hymn. Do you know what the hymn was? Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. That might be a good hymn for us to leave singing today. And certainly the prayer we ought to pray, Dear Lord Jesus, I can't be everything they need me to be. I can't be everything I want to be. But dear Lord, if you just help me be more like Jesus, out of that, Christ will meet the needs. Thank you for listening. We hope that the Lord has used this message to speak to you. The REST Conference is a meeting designed to encourage and strengthen pastors, missionaries, evangelists, and their wives, along with other Christian workers serving the Lord in their local churches. REST 2022 is scheduled for September 5th through the 7th at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. We hope that you and your spouse will make plans to be with us. For more information on REST, please visit our website, therestconference.com.